This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. in a season in the world when we are building more inclusive communities, organizations, and workplaces. And what we've learned, particularly in the last year, although we've been learning and knowing about it for a long time, is that we really need to do some healing. And you might ask the question, what will it take to actually heal? Well, the Kellogg Foundation actually is involved in a healing process, and it's called the National Day of Racial Healing, which is held every year. On the National Day of Racial Healing, many groups come together across the United States and elsewhere, and they use the materials that are provided by the Kellogg Foundation to engage in significant dialogues with diverse groups about what does the future look like and how can we co-create it together? And first of all, how do we heal ourselves before we do the work? Before I get into what I experienced in this year's National Day of Racial Healing with the Kellogg Foundation, I want to just mention a little bit about the mission of the Kellogg Foundation. The mission is to support children families, and communities as they strengthen to create conditions that actually resource vulnerable children and resource them to achieve success as individuals and also as contributors to the larger community and society. The Kellogg Foundation envisions a nation that marshals its resources to assure that All children have an equitable and promising future, a nation in which all children thrive. And they really mean all children, no matter what race, no matter what ethnic background. So when I come back to the day of racial healing, there are some aspects that you want to engage in when you're doing healing. One is truth telling. You have to tell the truth both the good and the bad, about what has happened and what is happening. And in order to tell the truth, it's important to create safe spaces. You want to be able to recognize people and recognize their different experiences. And it's also a time of connecting people, individuals, to different cultures and to different practices. You're facilitating people moving from with a sense of agency to actually engage in social justice activism to make a difference. Now, a lot of times what causes people to get stuck on this journey so that it's difficult for them to make progress is when they stay mired in the hurt, the anger, the resentment, and feeling wronged. So we have to remember that racial healing is a process And it includes these dialogues and sharing together. At this year's event, 
it was virtual because of still being in a pan, the uh, pandemic situation. There were a number of phenomenal speakers from all over the country who had different viewpoints and vantage points just to elevate learning and understanding of scenarios that are going on even today in our society. Also, there were some celebrity sorts of guests who were part of the National Racial Day of Healing to include musician John Legend. He was part of it. And also the National Youth Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman, who you probably saw at the presidential inauguration, she was also part of the experience as well. And my role, I was one of the people who was facilitating a group of the Kellogg Fellows who were also engaging the content of the Racial Healing Day. I was facilitating some of those conversations that we were having. Now, as a result of participating in the Racial Day of Healing, I learned some things that I didn't know before. And I want to just share one of the things that I learned. We were talking about the history of giving tips to workers in the restaurant industry, like waiters and waitresses. This tradition began in feudal Europe. And what happened in feudal Europe is people were paid a full wage. And in addition to the full wage, you would leave a small tip. And I remember when I lived in Germany, we used to leave just a small amount, maybe the change you got back from a transaction at a restaurant, and it would just be the small change you would leave for the waiter or waitress. It was nowhere near 20%. It wasn't like what we might do in the United States because that person was receiving a full wage. And this wasn't a tip as we typically think about it in the United States to augment the wage. The people in Germany who were waiters and waitresses, their salary was already their living wage. Well, what we learned is that in the United States, after the time of slavery, the people who were working in these jobs as waiters and waitresses were predominantly Black women who had formerly been enslaved. And because of that, the U.S. changed how the tip system worked. And instead of making the tip something extra on top of a living wage, they cut down the true wage to something that was not livable so that the person had to live on tips that they received. Now, if you can imagine if you're in a society where there's already disparity and racial discrimination and you're a black woman, not too long, let's say freed even from slavery, the chances of you getting a living wage tip are not that high. And so we found then that people really couldn't live very well on the low salary and the low tips in order to have a decent living. And even today in the United States, the base salary for those who are receiving tips at the federal level is only $2.13 an hour. That's a lot of money in tips that someone's going to have to make up if they're going to have any kind of living at all. Now, of course, different states have higher wages than the minimum wage at the federal level, but that's the federal requirement. 
one of the women that we heard from during the National Day of Racial Healing was a woman who was a waitress. And she talked about being in that position, the kind of abuse that you have to take from patrons when you are dependent on their tips. A lot of times you can be in a situation where you have a little bit more choice and a little bit more agency if you're already being paid a living wage and don't have to rely on tips to that same degree. So that was really interesting and fascinating to me to be able to participate in that and to learn something new that I really didn't know before. So on this day of healing practices, we're engaging in activities like storytelling, dialogue, various rituals, a number of which come from the Native American communities and other communities as well, spiritual practices to really engage in the healing, including the healing of internalized oppression. A lot of times oppressed people even oppress themselves and each other because of the impression that's been done to them, and that has to be healed as well. And it becomes self-destructive in terms of behavior people might engage in. For example, end up being addicted to drugs, join gangs, and so on. A lot of this is because of the internalized oppression. So it's a day where you take time to reflect, you pay attention to your values, you might do some journaling, some meditation, whatever it takes to help move from one place to the next place. Maximizing opportunities for people starts with what we will call racial equity. Striving for racial equity is a world where opportunity is equally available to all. It's not only just a matter of social justice, but also being a catalyst for economic opportunity. That's where you want to go from racial healing to actually having this impact. The statistics suggest that by 2050, if we look at the workforce, about right now we have about 3.9 working people for every one person who's of retirement age. In 2050, we'll only have 2.7 people of working age for every one person who's of retirement age. So the future productivity is critical, it's important for a healthy fiscal outlook. Those people who are creating space for diverse talent, people they're going to employ in the workforce of the future, those people are going to drive the economic growth of the future. And so it's going to be really important that we take a look at systemic barriers and begin to reduce some of those barriers. Begin to identify where oppression might exist and to uncover the power dynamics and to address them. So for example, there are three major areas that affect children, that affect their future opportunities, that affect what later happens to them in the workplace. One is a matter of housing. Many times, impoverished children are located in concentrated areas of poverty. So when they grow up, they actually don't have as many choices as those children who grow up in what you could call opportunity areas. When you grow up in an impoverished area, you're less likely to go to college. You're less likely to get additional education of any type you have a much lower 
earning potential as opposed to those children who grow up in opportunity areas where it's just the opposite. So even affecting housing makes a difference in terms of what happens to children later in the workplace. Also, there are a number of health disparities. And we do know that healthy children lead to healthy adults. And again, the healthier you are, the more options and choices that you can make as well. A third pillar would be some things that happen in education. Although the research shows that children of color do not misbehave more than white children do, the reality is that children of color are punished at a much higher and harsher rate than their white counterparts. And this actually sets the stage for the trajectory of going from school even to prison. And so being able to address the climate that exists in the school system and the kinds of schools that children go to make a difference in terms of their experiences and their realities. Let me say a little bit about the founding of the WKKF, which is the Will Keith Kellogg Foundation, because I think the history of the founding is really important in terms of understanding what they do today. The foundation was founded in 1930 as a private foundation by Will Keith Kellogg. It's one of the largest philanthropic foundations in the United States. And it was resourced at the beginning with $66 million from the Kellogg Company's resources. In addition, the foundation was resourced with a large percentage of the Kellogg Company's stock. What Mr. Kellogg was concerned about was being able to facilitate the success of those that we might call even the least of these in society. And it wasn't just to directly give money to causes, although he did do some of that. What was more important was funding those people who were out there creating solutions and funding those people who would collectively get together and create solutions. He really believed that all children should have equal opportunity. And if you think about 1930, in the United States during the time of the Depression and during a time when there was significant racial segregation and discrimination, Mr. Kellogg was unusual. He was ahead of his time. He was visionary in that he wanted children of color to also have these opportunities as well. He wanted particularly to reach out to the most vulnerable children so they too could reach their full potential. Today, the Kellogg Foundation operates in communities that have the greatest disparities and they've identified some place-based initiatives. So for example, they operate in Michigan, they operate in Mississippi, New Mexico, New Orleans, and they also have a national scope as well to look at disparities in other communities. And they're also resourcing some international places such as Mexico and Haiti. There are three pillars that the Kellogg Foundation pays attention to in terms of making a difference. One of those pillars is racial equity, and that's the racial healing piece. Another pillar is community engagement. And this is really 
building on community-based power, bringing networks of people together, building those networks and having them work collectively. And then there's leadership where the leaders in the community who are doing this work, they gain skills and self-mastery in order to do the work in a better way. The whole process is a process of intelligent study. That means going out, collecting data, doing some research in communities, collecting narratives, looking at policies that exist in these communities. What's going on? Where are their issues? Where is there an opportunity for change? Secondly would be cooperative planning. And that would mean partnering with other people in the process so that you've got residents, you've got community leaders, you bring all of those voices together, you link the national with the local, and you provide resources. And together in a collaborative way, you build capacity so that on the third realm, you're doing group action together. In that process, you're organizing multi-sector partnerships, education, health, employment, and you're building relationships and trust with the community. It's not doing something to them, you're doing work with them. And they are participating in specifying what is to happen next. And when we think about the workplace, some of the actions and initiatives important to do in the workplace would be to review the hiring and work practices of the workplace, number one. Number two, you make some targeted investments in people and in communities, such as a lot of corporate social responsibility programs are doing today. And then thirdly, you want to support the public policies that increase the ability for all to succeed. The Kellogg Foundation is headed today by President and CEO LaJune Montgomery Tebron. She's an African-American woman. She's the first African-American president and CEO of the foundation, and she's the ninth president of the foundation. She's been at the foundation since 1987, becoming president in 2013, held a number of roles from controller, to operations executive vice president, to CFO, and so many other jobs along the way before becoming president. Let me say a word or two also more about Mr. Kellogg. He really believed in the power of communities to forge solutions for themselves in the areas of health and happiness and well-being for their children. He was about equipping the people with the knowledge and resources that they needed to pursue those solutions. He was born in 1860. He died in 1951 at the age of 91. And when he died, he was blind by the time that he got to the end of his life. He held a number of different jobs along the way, first working with his brother in a sanitarium and a spa that really was for people who were challenged in many ways. And while he was there, that's when he experimented, and particularly in the middle of the night, creating food for the sanitarium and the spa, he accidentally created the cornflake. And that's when the food was born in about 1906. But he had always been about creating healthy food. He had always been about health food. And as a Seventh-day Adventist, he took his diet very seriously. He later left the sanitarium and went full-time into business 
with the Kellogg Corporation producing cereal. Even though knockoff other brands emerged and came up, his brand always had his signature, the way he wrote his name, Kellogg, on it, and that made it distinctive from the rest of the marketplace. Back at the time when he came along, children were not thriving so very well, so this help was really, really needed. And his own personal experiences very often helped him to have compassion. For example, he had a grandson who fell out of the second floor window of Mr. Kellogg's Battle Creek home. And as a result of that, this grandson was disabled permanently and was in a wheelchair. Mr. Kellogg had plenty of money. He had enough money to provide for this grandson. However, there just were not the services. There just were not the kinds of help that he really needed available. And so he dedicated himself to creating environments where children like his grandson could get the help needed. And in fact, a school was started that was named after his mother that was probably the first school that did mainstreaming of children that were disabled. So children could be educated at the same time and same place with able-bodied children, and he thought that was important as well. The National Day of Racial Healing takes place every year, and it's usually held the day after the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Anyone can participate. If you'd like to know more about it, you can go to the website of the Kellogg Foundation at wkkf.org, and you can also go to the website dayofracialhealing.org. When you go there, you will find there's a toolkit, there are conversation guides, so that on the next day of racial healing, if you'd like to bring together a group of people from your community, from your family, from your neighborhood environment, and have dialogues together and hear from the wonderful speakers that will be broadcast all over the nation for all those people who are participating, you can find out about the information now and start to get ready. So again, wkkf.org or dayofracialhealing.org. So as we close today's segment, and as you think about the racial healing that's necessary, and think also about the work that's necessary to make sure that all children and all people are able to thrive and to live up to their full potential. I want to share today's biblical word of wisdom, which comes from Matthew, the 25th chapter, starting in the 34th verse, going to verse 40. And it reads as follows. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, as I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it 
to me. As an executive business leader, you have many difficult decisions to make every single day. And it's important to think about how do you develop your people? How do you launch and develop high-performance teams? And how do you create a culture that wins every time? If you would like to take a look at your organization and to talk about the wisdom and guidance that would propel you to create a best place to work and also competitive advantage, then I invite you to apply for a consultation to work with me. Go to my website, www.transleadership.com, go to the services page, and under organizational consultation, you will see a tab that says, contact us. That's where you request a consultation. So if you are an executive business leader in a medium to large size company, then I look forward to receiving your application and having a conversation with you. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.